in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Chad Robinson, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Brian Fry. How you doing tonight, Brian? Good evening, everybody. And along with Brian, we've got a dealer's choice. It is Brian's dealer's choice. He has brought along Dustin Melbardis. Dustin, thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Good evening. Doing very well. It was a long day, 12-hour day, ready to relax with the podcast, bros. Ooh, that is dedication. I want nothing to do with anyone after 12 hours. Uh Today's movie, we're going to do a Robert De Niro movie. Haven't covered too many of those. We did Backdraft and Jackie Brown, but this is his first first build movie for the podcast. So that's exciting. With that being said, Brian, we'll start with you. What is your favorite De Niro performance? Well, I mean, that's 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 a tall order because it is De Niro, but I think that just for the sake of variety and not picking this movie, I'm going to pick uh, his character with Cuba Gooden Jr. in Men of Honor. Okay. I was positive you were going to say Little Fockers. Dustin, did <laughs> no. I just take yours? You didn't take mine, but I'm going to do the opposite of what Brian did and say it's this movie, which we've not said yet. This is my favorite performance of his. I counted. I looked at his filmography, and I've seen 12 movies with him in them. Uh, and I would say growing up, the one that had the most sort of cultural impact with the people of my age at the time was not Little Fockers, but it was Meet the Parents, mm -hmm. in which he's kind of playing a version of himself that like that comedic version of his tough guy self is maybe for some people like your ideal form of what Robert De Niro of like an old Robert De Niro. So th that's that one I think was most impactful. But uh, it's this movie that that I love. Okay, okay. Very intrigued to find out what that movie is. We'll talk about that in a second. For me, it was Raging Bull. This is one of those movies that came up in my film appreciation class that I appreciated. I, I think it's a very, very tough movie to watch. It's not one that you're going to go back to quite often, but it's still one of the best pictures I've ever seen. You know, more classes should be about if you appreciate something. Yes. <laughs> you raise your hand. I completed the assignment, sir. I, I appreciated it. Yes. Yeah. One of, one of my favorite things to say to, to tick off like real, like hardcore film doctoral students is uh, ra uh, Raging Bull is the Boogie Nights of Boxing. Okay. All right. That, uh, I'm going to move on from that. I, I'm not in that same school. Prove but, me wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, what's the last movie you saw? And don't let it be Boogie Nights. No, it was not, it was not Boogie <laughs> Nights. Uh, the last movie I watched was From Russia With Love. Excellent. I love that. 
I've been cranking through one Bond movie a week, uh, starting at the very beginning. So last week was Dr. No, this week has been from Russia with love and we will continue on. Excellent. Excellent movie. Dustin, what was your last movie? Y'all, I watched a new movie. Wow. Can you believe it? I watched on my own volition. I, I watched <laughs> uh, from 2022. It's a movie called Antlers, Ooh. which uh, I, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, I was in a position where I was like, hey, you want to watch this? Yeah, sure. And I was really pleasantly surprised at the material and the myth involved in the movie Antlers. I'm not going to say I recommend it. I'd say I'd probably give it a two out of five stars. But I liked the content. Yeah, great monster design. Guillermo del Toro's involved. Carrie Russell. Good stuff. Uh, as for me, we record these ahead of time. So I'm, I'm not even sure this is probably going to release around Thanksgiving. But it's October right now for me. I just finished up my 31 straight days of horror challenge. And I capped it off with the new Hellraiser. And... For all the criticism, I guess, that has been surrounding it, I liked it. I, it's a decent Hellraiser movie. I'm not a big fan of the franchise itself. I will say for, like, pleasure demons, there this was like the least horny Hellraiser I've ever seen. And I, <laughs> I have now seen 11 of them, so that, that, that seems strange that they went in that direction. But it's definitely <laughs> worth your time. Yes. Unless you're uh, unless you're in for a horny movie, and then nope, not going to do it for you. Speaking more of more like a hell downer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I see what you did there. Yes, very, very, very good, Dustin. Just for that, you're gonna re you're gonna introduce the movie that we're doing today. Today we are covering Ronin from 1998. That's right. This is hey. this is Brian Fry's. Dealer's choice. This is what, given any movie in existence, this is what Brian said, you guys need to see. So it's starring Robert De Niro, like we said, Gene Reno. It's probably Jean Reno. Uh, Natasha. Jean Reno. Uh, McElhone, Stellan Skarsgård, Sean Bean, who doesn't die, Jonathan, and Jonathan Price. One of the few. Yes. You and the proud. One of the only. It feels like yeah. he should have. This character should have died. <laughs> it does kind of seem that way, yeah. It's released in 1998, a budget of $55 million. It grosses $41 million domestically. Not great. Place in the box office is number 47. The movie that placed ahead of it was The Negotiator, and behind it is The Siege. The number one movie that year was Saving Private Ryan. IMDb likes this movie. It's at a 7.2. The critics are a little harder on Rotten Tomatoes, 69%. Audience score, 80%. It wins no awards, but I, I did find this. Screen Rant lists this as the number one best action film you've never heard of. So we'll throw in the Screen Rant award for a film you might not have heard of coming straight from Brian Fry. Brian, this is your dealer's choice. I'm going to assume you've seen this movie, but can you talk talk to us about your background with it? Guys, this is where I live. I actually didn't know about the uh, the Screen Rant number one until I was doing my research, you know, doing some background digging on the film. I saw this movie, I want to say it was either on a whim or I bought a used DVD and said, oh, it's got De Niro. Let's have a watch this. This movie blew me away. 
this is one of those films that you watch, you sit on, you don't tell anybody about it because you're like, mm, you know, maybe it's just me sort of thing. And over the time that we've been doing dealer's choices, I've really kind of let that mature a little bit and said, okay, I've got some gems. Like I can come out, you know, throw in some bricks. So let's, uh, let's go with this one. So, uh, I, I've, I've been super excited to do as many dealers choices as I have recently. And, uh, yeah, I was like, when Russell asked me, which one do you want to do? I want to say there was about a 15 second lag of me pulling it up on IMDb and sending him the link. Very nice. Dustin, how about you? It sounded like positive things already. Had you seen Ronan before? If you had, what were your expectations coming in? Or if you hadn't, what did this do for you? I, I had seen it before, and there was a period where my dad was introducing movies he loved to me, but it, they, it was always too early. Everything my dad introduced to me was when I was not old enough to get it yet. And I think he maybe just thought that I was a bright kid and I would pick up on some of the nuance of something or, but you know, like geopolitical type of, uh, forces don't, don't work for, we'll say an 11 year old the same way. So I was really excited that this came back up because, you know, heat and Ronin and some of these movies from the late nineties don't hit the same way when you're a little boy. So I was super excited about this one, and um, I was glad to sort of, as I've said before, get the opportunity to lend like the critical eye to it and dig in a little more. Uh, and I was, uh, once again, sort of like with, if, if Brian's picking it, I think that's one of the things that, that maybe it kind of picking up what Brian was putting down was he's, he might sit on this recommendation with casual friends of his that watch movies, but with us, he's, I think he's confident like, I can present Ronan and these guys will see it at least partly the way that I see it. Mm. Yeah. And I'll be the outstanding one here. I had not seen this movie. I am in the, this is an action film I have never heard of. And so I looked it up just briefly for the description and it said nineties crime thriller. And I said, sounds about right. That is Brian Fry's wheelhouse. And then I looked at the length and saw it was over two hours long, just slightly. And I sighed to myself and said, this is not going to be a good time for me. And boy, was I wrong. So, Brian, I shame on you for keeping this to yourself. I had a great yeah, time. Yeah, it's on Brian. <laughs> it, yeah. it is. I did not keep this to myself because I am not a selfish jerk. I told like three people upon immediately <laughs> seeing this said, hey, do you enjoy Jason Bourne and the Bourne Identity and series like that? If you do, go see this obscure movie from the 90s. And everyone's like, I've never heard of it. Well, Robert De Niro's in it. Go see it. Whether or not... It is, it is very aptly ranked for yeah. action movies you've never heard of. Like, when I read that, I was like, yep, that's... I mean, I, I'm happy they got number one. Honestly, I mean, you know, Screen Rant has some fairly prestigious lists. So when I found out that it was number one on that, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm doing the little goalpost thing here. I'm like, that's absolutely correct. Right. Um, I'll also say uh, from a length perspective, this movie has never felt two hours to me. No, it didn't. Like heat, you feel the length. <laughs> like it's a great movie, but you you feel every minute of heat. This movie goes down quick. 
Like this is not something that it's going to, you're not going to feel labored <laughs> watching this film. This is not master and commander from earlier in this year. <laughs> Brian. <laughs> that one's got some, yeah, that one does feel long, uh, but you know, it's, it's a realistic waiting. It's not waiting for waiting's sake. It's not uh, building tension artificially. The things that take time to plan or to discuss from our main characters. I think I I can't I think I can't say Jean Reno's name like Jean Reno anymore. I think I'm just gonna call him Gene Reno from now on. Yeah, you're, Gene uh, Reno. you're welcome. I am from West Virginia. That's his name. His name is Gene Reno. Gene Reno starring yes. at the Ultra Lux Casino singing tonight at eleven PM. It's Gene Reno. Yeah. Jean Jean Reno, great actor. Can't pronounce your name. You can come on the podcast and yell at me. That's fine. But there's, yeah, there's an amount of time they take to deliver the lines they need to and to, as far as filmmaking goes, like, think about what their next step is that all seems both urgent and not too lengthy for the amount of time it takes. 100%. We will get into all of those plot discussions and pauses in the action where things are being planned out. But first, we're going to take a quick ad break. We will be right back. If you haven't checked out this movie, sounds like a bunch of you haven't, please do before Dustin spoils it for you. We'll be right back. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we're back. Last warning, if you haven't seen 1998's Ronin, if Brian has neglected to tell you about this movie, if Dustin has <laughs> neglected to tell you, please check it out. Dustin, break this down for us. Five mercenaries walk into a French bar and the bartender says, I've got a job for you. We learn that Sam, Vincent, Larry, Spence, and Gregor are all brought in as hired guns to stage and snatch up a protected case at the behest of Deirdre, an Irish handler who is a front for a larger organization. They're being paid five grand per week of preparation with the promise of a $20,000 bonus for successful completion of retrieving the case. But we learn through Sam's questioning that they are involved with much larger organizations and very serious players. The team works together to score some weapons, which turns out to be a setup, but reveals just how capable our whole team is, except for Spence, who is ceremoniously excused from the team, and Sean Bean's character lives. Yay. <laughs> the crew stakes out a villa and a hotel where the job is supposed to occur, and sparks fly between Sam and Deirdre. The plan to ambush the target and retrieve the case seems successful until they are betrayed by Gregor, who then attempts to work solo toward receiving a larger payout from the Russians. Bullets fly and relationships unravel as Deirdre and her superior 
Sinn Féin IRA agent Seamus capture Gregor while Vincent and Sam continue to track down the case. A final agreement to meet at the Russian ice capades, or whatever that was, to make the exchange results in Gregor's deal being rejected, Gregor's head gaining a new and unhelpful deadly hole, Russian star figure skater being sniped, IRA leader getting plugged by Vincent, Deirdre fleeing away from danger, Russian mafioso McKay being tagged, and Sam and Vincent surviving the encounter. Lucky to have their lives and a new friendship? Though in the mercenary world, you never know who's going to end up on the other side of the battle lines, and these wandering agents without masters continue on toward their separate futures. Excellent. And you kind of referenced where they get this name in the end part, the 47 Ronin. They tell this story incorrectly, might I add, because in the movie they say, hey, all 47 Ronin commit seppuku. 46 actually did. One goes on for another mission, and he's later pardoned. So not everyone died. They got that wrong. Uh, that being said, we've got... That was Keanu Reeves, by the way. He yes. was the, the, the last one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is also immortal, so he actually he could He was have the been. one. Yes. He was the one. That's Jet Li. Now we're getting all kind of confused. Oh, no. <laughs> There's so many Jet Lees in that movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We we do have an ensemble team, as Dustin addressed, and Ronan. Uh, I want to spend some time on the team members first and foremost. Uh, did you guys like the time that we spent? And we spent a lot of time with the team for Sam, Vincent, Deirdre, Larry, Gregor, Spence. Who was standing out to you and who did you want more from? Brian? I, I don't know how the cast got through the promos for this movie this was a an extraordinarily poorly handled if you've ever seen the 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 previews for this movie uh they cheese it up they make it look like just a run-of-the-mill action movie it is it is woefully not this is this is french connection-esque you know we've had we've heard um born identity thrown around a little bit it definitely has that that wonderful completely european flair to it mm -hmm. that you know with a lot of bond movies you jump sets you know you have stuff happening all these different places this has a very uniquely uh and, and believably european feel to it and that's one of the things i love so much about it but i don't know how you cast this many people at that time you've got stellan skarsgård not too far out of like hunt for red october you've got jean renault and this is in the ball, uh, uh, ballpark of the professional you've got robert de niro just throwing bricks left and right with his career uh, and I mean that in a good way, not bricks is in like bad thing. Like he's, he's throwing, not like Russell fists. Westbrook bricks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's throwing, he's throwing fists, not doing knockouts with all of his movies. So you've got all these people that are fantastic at what they're doing right now. And then this movie just very quietly just goes unnoticed. And I completely blame the publicist for this. Like they did a horrible job publicizing this film. Mm. Well, these guys are, these guys are, uh, part of a team and we get to see them working together as a team that's you are brought together with them quickly and the filming of how there's tension and uncertainty uh quickly you're given and this is by design that you learn that 
uh, Vincent and Sam start to get along pretty quickly. I think it might have just been like the exchange of a pack of cigarettes or something, but yep. they, they they begin to trust each other pretty quickly. Sean Bean's character, you know, Spence, is very clearly the one who's loosest canonist. Like he, he he's a he's not as experienced. We learn later, but uh, his brash attitude is a little different. Um, both Larry and Gregor are quite calculated, and I think it's within maybe fifteen or twenty minutes. You get a situation where not not none of these guys are only their specialty, like other heist movies might sometimes put the crew together. Uh, they are all professionals in their own right, and they can adapt. And I believe Deirdre says, like, as part of the plan, you're not going to know exactly what we're going to do. You're going to need to improvise. And all of them just kind of nod their heads like, yeah, we're going to need to. Uh, y- your question about did you like seeing them work together as a team? It's hard to say that you like you need more, but you'd you'd want more maybe of that first third of the movie where there's still a team before the plans begin to unravel. Yeah, the the case exchange under the bridge is a very tense and interesting scene because they're all just trying to figure each other out. You get Spence who's to your point, he's really inexperienced. He's like, yeah, I'll go into the dark tunnel where all the guys are waiting for me with a block car as Sam keeps going, I wouldn't go you in there. You don't want to go in there? Yeah. yeah. Yes, there's, there's no protection there. Why are you going to go in there? Yeah. And it turns out I, there is a sniper. You, I, I love how, what a, what a, I mean, there are several cool characters in this film, but Jean Reno's, I'm being paid to go in there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just, mm-hmm. The dialogue in this film does such a great job executing those lines without them being cheesy. Yeah. Yeah, there there's a lot of humor. That's such an awesome line that get yeah, I mean, like I said, everything here is very subtle. I, I, I think the subtlety of this movie is its its true gem because nothing is done in this film that's ham handed. Hmm. To Dustin's point, they're not exactly pigeonholed in these roles but as they're going through and kind of introducing the people like okay spence is the weapons guy larry is the driver gregor is our tech guy sam and vincent seem like they're the ones that are actually going to shoot you the muscle yes and deirdre is the brains behind it all and and it breaks down pretty pretty badly from there because they all get thrown into different roles Larry winds up in a firefight. Spence, we find out, is faking it. I I love the example of draw it again when Sam's asking him to draw out the ambush again. And he's just like, you're an idiot. <laughs> Gets exposed. You want to you teach us about an ambush? I just ambushed you with a coffee cup. Yeah. 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 And I was determined that Spence would show back up. Like, he's going to show back up. They're going to need him for something. And then when they... They lost a member or they they needed someone to fill in. We need like, two oh. we need two more guys. Yeah. It's like, oh, they're gonna call up Spence. Good time. Nope. He just nope. he gets booted out of this movie and out he goes. So Sean Bean is the one I wanted more from. I wanted him to come back and I wanted him to get killed. Because it's just that, That's what Sean Bean does. Right. Yeah. It's his thing. Yeah. I think that that uh, to that point, I think that if they had ever, and I'm not, I'm not pro this idea, but I think this is one of those things where if this ever did get a sequel, 
that's when Sean Bean shows back up, maybe as a more seasoned operative. Like he was kind of faking it until he made it. And then once he got his chops a little bit, you know, obviously he had a couple experiences that makes him that hardened vet that, that Jean Renault and Robert De Niro already are. Then, you know, he shows up in, in part two or something like that. Yeah, His recklessness is what makes him more dangerous. He's not, he's not as dangerous being green and, uh, do we know that if he's lying about his SAS experience? Yeah, because uh, he yeah, couldn't. Like, I think that's. I think it's the. Yeah, he couldn't right. tell Which the I, color of what was it? The building, the tower, or something like that. There was a specific no, color. No, I, this is this is a this is one of those uh, movie quote ticks of mine that I will I'll bring up randomly in conversation where I'll say something like, "What color is the boathouse at Hereford?" At yeah. Hereford. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I've asked, I've asked people that like dry, like no, no background, no, whatever, you know, just what's the, what's the color of the boathouse in here for? Well, I guess what's the and, right response? Do they start looking for an ambush or something? <laughs> uh, I, it, well, it's something I looked up once upon a time. There are actually two boathouses in Hereford. So, oh. um, but, uh, it, it's, it's not about the answer. It's about, do you recognize this or not? And right. if you do, if you do, we're friends. It's one of those. Do we just become best friends? Yeah. <laughs> well, so we, yeah. What we as an audience are shown that he's not handling the situation like a professional. He's cheering after they get away. I mean, he's got a couple <laughs> lines. Yeah, and then and then he also gets sick. Uh, and so this is something that the other professionals must notice. And it's Sam's character who not only notices but sort of sets him up. And during that scene is when. They, they all of them who are worthy of this world um, and have been successful in this world without being a poser uh, must have recognized it. But they're not the same take charge guy like Sam was to expose him and then essentially get him out the team. Uh, it, probably no real ill will. It's just like your presence makes it more dangerous for all of us. Uh, what you're trying to save your skin? Yeah, I like it. My body's inside it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and Sam susses all of that out even with gregor where he just looks at him and then knocks over the coffee cup and gregor just reflexes grabs it immediately and he looks over oh i got you and it's 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 subtle but not how he figures everyone out in this movie and you have him do the the initial you know how far can i push these people what can they actually do? And then there's also like little parts where you never really see him purposely push Jean Renault, but you get those pieces during it when they're talking to one another. And, you know, when he says, are you labor or management? And Jean Renault goes, if I were management, I would not have given you a cigarette. Like they've got that similar, like they say these little one liners that are funny, but they're not too funny. Like I'm not a joker, but I, you know, I can say something that's that's jovial and and funny at the time. Kind of like when they they're going through the whole interrogation piece and Sean Bean saying like, "Oh yeah, you can hold out indefinitely," and Robert De Niro says, "No one holds out indefinitely." It's like, "Oh, how'd they finally get to you?" Well, they gave me a grasshopper. What's that? He goes, <laughs> two parts creme de menthe, one part." You know, like it's like it, it's right. like he says something funny, but it's not too funny. 
look, you guys are just committed to pronouncing Gene Reno's name correctly through this entire podcast, and I don't appreciate Gene it. Gene Reno. No, the, the best thing is, we're probably all wrong, and someone's going to blow us up for this. So whoever you are, I know it's going to happen. That's fine. We love him anyway. Uh, we'll have him on for an apology. Yeah. yeah. I like to call Sean Bean, Scene Bean, or Sean Bean. Bon, because yes. those words should rhyme. I... <laughs> This is this is becoming my thing of just mispronouncing major cast members' names. Uh, I'm gonna move on now to two car oh, chases, I, though. No, Brian, you will not pronounce chases. his name correctly. Car chases. No, I, I was uh, all I wanted to say is I was pretty sure you guys don't <laughs> let me host anymore because I was gonna mispronounce Dustin's last name on purpose for the rest of my life. This is yeah. true. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. It, it hurt his feelings, and we need him to for editing purposes. <laughs> we need his skills. Yes. yes. Yeah, I, I know a guy from high school. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, this movie features incredible car chases, two of them, really. What worked for you, and does this place highly on your best car chase films? Totally. And, and it was the first thing uh, I... You notice car chases when attention is put to them. Uh, a lot of action movies have them as, it's hard to say like set dressing, but they're just sort of part of the formula. And this movie makes it very clear that it's a major part of what sets it apart from other, uh, films in the genre. Uh, the tight spaces in the very real seeming city streets, uh, the, I guess the cinematography of them is something that kind of blew me away because occasionally when you're watching an action movie you you get a chance to like to to sometimes not focus when there's not dialogue uh but the 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 car chases and the acting of the people inside the cars as the chasing is happening really really kind of keeps your attention i rewound them a couple of times uh for this most recent watch through uh just to see some fun stuff uh, particularly the uh when when larry comes blasting out of that sort of curve where he's in hiding for the initial plan and immediately like takes out one of the accompanying cars and you you also get some fun gun work with it uh so like it's like larry's not just the driver he also is like you know good with his pistol and th there's a lot of things that are interweaved with just the driving you know, sometimes you get a pleasant surprise like Beverly Hills Cop starts with an incredible <laughs> truck chase through Detroit. That rules. That's not a car chase movie. You will read online that this movie is ranked up there with a bullet and some of these other like French Connection, like some of these other movies renowned. And I think it has earned it. They went uh, 300 stunt drivers and their 80 automobiles were ruined during the course of filming these chases. So. It's it's a huge, huge part. Brian, how about you? Is this up there on your list of car chases? So, although it's such an integral part of this, I've never thought of this movie as a car chase film. Like, not in the way you look at, like, Italian Job and mm -hmm. some other things where, where the car chase is essential. The car chase, yeah, the car chase is not essential to this film. It's a cool thing that they did and executed amazingly well, but it also blends well. Like I said, nothing in this movie is done ha ham-handedly. 
So they were able to put these very compelling car chases. And I'll actually count four on this. And I think the reason it doesn't uh, come across as ham-handed is because of how they massaged the car aspect into it properly. So you have them getting away from their bad gun deal gone wrong. So you got car sequence there, even though it wasn't technically a chase. You've got your uh, your primary car chase that is like the, the big deal. You have uh, them chasing after Seamus and Deidre in the mini Rome city. I'm blanking on the name of it right now. Nice. Uh, after, yeah, no, it's after they killed Larry, uh, whatever that little little Coliseum area was. So you have the, the Paris one, the Nice one, the mini Coliseum town one, and then the end one through Paris again, trying to, to catch them after the post office. So you actually have yeah. four, four chase scenes. The first one's just a, a, the police chasing them, but you got four police or four chase scenes. The first one is the least climactic if you take away the fact that, you know, Sean Bean's losing his mind after nearly being killed and then stops <laughs> to throw up, like that's also important. And you see like, you know, that adrenaline coming down and that piece. So the reason it doesn't come across as hammy handed for me is because they, they keep pushing that envelope. They start a little subtle, they go for the biscuits and then they keep going for it after that. So it's not that there's just one, but it's also not something that is like the crowning achievement of the film. It's, it's a device used to further the greatness of the film. Hmm. Okay. All right. For me though, it's, it's definitely going to be the thing that sticks out in my mind, even with a film that I wouldn't call a car chase film, but I think of Goldeneye, I think of the tank scene of that's just one sure. of those classic chases this is what tank I, chase this is what i will think of from this movie particularly they strip away every other element all you get are the tires there's no music i kind of wanted music i or at least i'd like to hear it with music and see which what i'd like better because it's a long long chase the wrong way in the tunnel Man, that had me just kind of white knuckled. And even those thin alleyways, yeah. everyone's dodging. They don't go the bullet uh, or it's French connection with the baby carriage. They don't go to that extreme. But a lot of civilians almost got taken out. They do get taken a lot out. Of pe- a lot of civilians die in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, they did get taken out in the tunnel. I don't I don't particularly like that. There was our heroes actually caused one of those deaths. And that, that kind of ruined a bit for me but i will say the most unrealistic part deirdre's driving a bmw and she consistently uses her turn signals during that (laughs) entire chase and it just took me right out it's like they're not equipped with turn signals i i will also say this on that piece i i don't know if it was just the angle of the camera with how european cars are but it seemed like everyone was constantly flashing their headlights yes and I'm not sure if I ever really gave enough credence to that happening. Like, it makes sense for the people going the correct way to be like, hey, you're going the wrong way, flash your headlights. But it also seemed like the cars that they were using, it, it, it's almost like in the filming of this, we started driving down the wrong way of the street. And to let people know that we were doing it, 
we were flashing our headlights too. Right. <laughs> like it was like a non-consensual, like we're going to drive down the wrong side of the street in Paris and it without telling anyone. It kind <laughs> and of these, like, and these uh, are going to be Ryan, real accidents. Yeah. It kind of seemed like they didn't tell anyone and they just right. went and drove. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so... <laughs> uh, uh, God, what you said about like, everyone's kind of bobbing and weaving. I'm sitting there on my couch and I do the thing where I move, like yeah. I kind of tilt to the left or the yeah. right. Oh, oh, yeah. oh you, you, if it's going to get clipped, it's going to clip the mirror or something. I got to dodge out of the way. Like you're playing a first person shooter or something. Yep. Um, yeah, it did seem real. And I, I think that's a, a really good point, Brian, about it. it. It's weaved into the rest of what's happening. You're interested in the stakes of who's in the car. You're not interested in like what happens to the car. The right. explosion at the end of the chase after they pick up the case is not the reward. The reward is that the chase is still happening because uh, Gregor got away. Uh, so, like, it's it's all part of it. And, uh, like, yeah, it's it's complete from piece to piece that you can get where you're going. And in this film, outside of one part where Larry says, like, Audi S8 or something like that, you're you're not they're not plugging cars in this. The, the, the car is not a character like you would have in a fast and the furious movie, or even, you know, like I mentioned before, Italian job where you have the mini Coopers, like where you're, you're, you're using the movie to shuttle a brand or something like that. Like at one point they just jump in this like Mercedes POS and peel off after somebody and outside of the camera swinging by the you know tires burning out you'd have no idea what that car is so i think that's part of it the car is not a character in bullet the car is a character in mm-hmm. bullet the yeah. car is not a character in this well i think all of these guys are operators in their own right so there's times when you know when deirdre's driving when sam is driving when vincent is driving i think vincent pulls off like an s turn like you, you, you get stuff like all of these people are capable of handling themselves when when the stuff hits the fan. Sometimes you got to, uh, you know, extricate. You've got to get out somehow. And so you see how they're all capable. It it feels like this mercenary world, uh, like you're continued to be immersed in it because they can handle themselves in so many ways. I do appreciate sure. that Skip Suddath, who plays Larry. He actually insisted on doing his own driving, but John Frankenheimer, who who let him do it to his credit, said, "You better not let me see brake lights." So they're <laughs> whoa, they're actually swinging around here. What a great aye aye, sir. <laughs> right, that's a little intimidating. Whee! So this movie has a MacGuffin. We Dustin talked about it. It's our silver briefcase. We've covered some famous MacGuffins in previous episodes. Probably most notably the Ark of the Covenant. We never find out what's in this briefcase. Are you guys like Brad Pitt wanting to know what's in the box? Or are you okay just never finding out? We never find out. I mean, I dig it. I, I, I At what point in this movie did you need to know? Uh, when several like, people have it, died the, and we execute a no, world like champion the, the, skating? The... The, the attainment is the purpose of this movie. It's, uh, I, I hate to use this quote, but I absolutely love it. It's, it's probably the only good part of this movie, but it's the quote from the Riddler in Batman Forever when 
Nicole Kidman says, my name's Chase Meridian. And he says, and what a fine pursuit you must be. Mm. Like I, that, that line is chocolate. Like, gosh, I love that line. And that's, that's this movie. The pursuit. It's the pursuit. And oh, okay, it's we amazing. got there. Okay. That's why you said that quote. Okay, sure. <laughs> like, it, like everything is about it. I mean, it's it, of course it is, but it's also that's the delicacy of it is is the the dogged determination to see it through to the end. I'm being paid to get this case, right? It, it, we don't need yeah. to know what's in the case. Yeah. Uh, we're not on a need to know basis. Okay, and then he starts asking the questions. What is it going to explode? Is it going to be chained <laughs> to, to, change to, to some, some stupid wrist? bloke's yep. wrist? Because if it is, then my rates just went up. We're going to need a hundred grand, and that's for all of us. Like, like the the pursuit, like like what you're describing, is so important to why they're doing it. But aside from just, I need the details to make my job safer, so I can take my money and go. That's it. Mm. There, there is no world saving device inside. There's no key for the golden eye satellite. Like it, it doesn't really matter. I, and I do like that. We don't know what's in there. That's okay. Learning what was in there would probably cheapen it for me. Uh, that's, it's fine. I, I don't think it's some genius device. Sometimes people say, Oh, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the intrigue. I think it's just, these are people here to do a job and for the, money. the job is for, to retrieve for the money. Yes. And, and they use subtle lines throughout the film. To say, you know why I'm here. Now, granted, the Robert De Niro piece has a twist at the end, but everybody else is there for the paycheck. Like that's. Well, that's I do. The- I do want to say it's at the end. I mentioned the word geopolitical earlier, where I believe in the end we have some type of political healing between Northern Ireland and like England. But like the I oh, it's because of this of shame is dying and because of this the actions there's actually like a greater positive thing for the world as far as nations i don't know if we needed it what what we care about are the ronin we care about the mercenaries the people who are involved and if i had not known from the radio while they're sitting in the restaurant or the bar that there was some type of positive greater thing involved wouldn't have mattered to to me it it was this particular story in a world where there are militaries and there are uh, larger forces, this was just about this one job that went awry and how the actors panned out. Man, you guys would make much better mercenaries than I would because I need to know what's you in You need this. to know? I'm sitting there thinking, what's something that could be useful to both the Irish and the Russians? And why is this like... The level of infamy and exposure by killing a multi-time, they said three, the uh, the actual skater that played Natasha in this film was a four-time world's champion. Killing her with a sniper bullet is not, that's going to raise all the alarms. So what what on earth is worth risking this much attention, this body count? I need to know. I I would like to believe that it is the keys to the Golden Eye satellite. It might have been. <laughs> it might have well, been. Well, but it's a, the yeah. in, the interesting. The, well, the interesting thing here is like you know Seamus wants it, but the thing is, Xing Feng was a predominantly communist 
organization. They got a lot of their arms from Russia. So the IRA and the Russians really shouldn't necessarily have been bidding against something unless it was something drastically to one of their benefits. So I, I feel like that leads more to the mystique of the case. Like if you have that, the Blarney stone, that, that, <laughs> that geopolitical <laughs> knowledge. But I also think, and this is how I'll defend uh, Sam's, you know, piece in the end is it explains the different level that he is on, that he spent this entire movie with his own agenda but also holding together this team aimed at not actually getting what the dangerous item is, but getting the dangerous person involved with its acquisition. And it added so much more mystique to the characters with the addition of the man in the wheelchair. Yes, which is a requirement for Dustin and I to have some... Some wheelchair reference in our film. Yes. <laughs> we don't like, get to see this man. No. One of, no. We one know of he's my... going fast and out of control. <laughs> right. And probably fighting someone. <laughs> Up and downstairs. <laughs> Brian, it has become our calling card. One of my absolute favorite interactions in this film is Sam and Gregor, where he asks him, you know, where did you get this job? And he goes, from a man who doesn't work so well. And he says, the man in the wheelchair, how did he get that way? And he was like, I believe that was back in your neck in the woods, back in the late unpleasantness. And what a great word <laughs> to describe the Cold War to two ex-Cold War. The yeah. late unpleasantness. Like I was like, God, that's like, the, the way that they show these operatives have a history of being operatives so subtly, but so under like even layman would be like, okay, there's clearly a, a thing here. Gosh, like that's, there's so much subtlety to this film. I love you it. You took the words right out of my mouth. I had, I had wanted to mention that these people know each other and it's not just your main team that knows each other. And it, I kind of referenced it in my plot summary is that the other people on the other side, you know, some of them too. Where, I think uh, Gene Reno says yes, to one of the guys you. that he's fighting, he says, uh, wait, wait, how do we know each other? And Gene says, Vienna. At Vienna. Yeah, we, we, we remember that. And, and so there's like a, like a professional courtesy, an honor among thieves in a way. That like, oh, we, we understand. These aren't just like bodyguards that you got off of the thrift store rack. The, all of these operatives have a history. They, they likely used to have allegiances, but now it's just, I've got all these skills and how do I use them? Well, I guess it's going to be with this team, with this one ex-KGB guy. And this, like, th that's my lot right now. And that's the, the only way, like my allegiance to how this mission goes off is how I continue to work using these skills and these skills alone. Hmm. Brian, you, you had mentioned the ending for this film and John Frankenheimer, he, he filmed two additional endings. And so in the first, we've got Deirdre, she's waiting on the stairs right by that little cafe that Sam and Vincent are, are meeting at. And she decides against going in, walks up the stairs as she goes to get into her car, 
IRA men drag her into a van, call her a traitor, and it's implied that she's killed. And Sam and Vincent are unaware of the abduction. They finish their conversation and they depart. Audiences hated that ending, didn't want to see Deirdre die. But Frankenheimer really thought it worked. His second ending, he had Deirdre walk up to her car after Sam and Vincent leave. And the ending was also rejected because they said it it verged on being too Hollywood. It hinted at the sequel that you guys said, eh, we don't really need. So Frankenheimer, he just said, you know what? The audience is always right. Uh, With the amount of investment in this movie, you kind of have to listen to your audience. Do you like either one of these endings better or maybe a hybrid than the one we get where Deirdre just disappears? I'll talk about this a little bit more later, but there is a part of me that just wants to walk around Momart at night all the time because of this movie, like in a trench coat. <laughs> I, there is a mystique to this film. It started with it and it ended with it. And I liked that wraparound conclusion because I mean, you're, you're, you're in, uh, you're, you're in France basically the whole film. So I, I don't, I think they could have left more strings unattached at the end of it. Just to, to nothing like this has a clean ending. Like when you have this many players involved, when you have, you know, this much at stake, like Sam, in the end, no matter what his, his attraction to Deidre was, they both knew what they were getting into. If one or both had died, that's what happens. If he didn't think about her again, or maybe he does. But, you know, it's one of those things that it's better to not know because it adds to the mystique of the film. And we get to see De Niro act. We get to, with a longing of... And it, part of it is the scene, and part of it is when he's leaving, getting into the car with his other contact. He's looking around. Yeah. Maybe one last chance. Is she there? And I've, I've mentioned before that I think romantic love doesn't have a place in a lot of movies. I found it actually as a positive here because it was so little of it. Um, you have to think that these people don't have time for love or attraction in their world. And we get a tad. We get a bit of it. Um, and I wouldn't want to see, you know, at the end of the rainbow, there she is, Truman Show-esque. Oh, <laughs> definitely she, not. Yeah, we don't 100%. Want, we don't want that. Um, and so would any of the other two options, like seeing the IRA and like, you know, drag her into a car to get black-sided or worse? No, I, I don't really want that either. <laughs> I think leaving it ambiguous was as good as it could get, um, unless you just happen to get maybe 30 seconds of... Uh, Spence breaking under torture and you see that it's actually Deidre interrogating him. So he's wrong and we get to see her one more time. That's just, that's my third ending that didn't make the film. Okay. Yeah, I, I like yeah, it. I, it. It is more about leaving the movie where you found it. Like the job is, is done and you still at the end of the film, you're like, okay, so Sam was CIA through the whole thing. Okay, yeah. maybe. Yeah, he's after yeah. someone. He he never left, is what he said. 
Right. But I'm going to object to something that Dustin said, because as the host that constantly gets put on the rom-com episodes and the, the just not even romantic comedy, just straight romance episodes, I do want Deirdre walking through that door at the end. You guys say we don't need it. I need it. I uh, I am the okay. this simple American audience that wants the happy sure. ending. I I think this would knock it way way down in Brian's book because you've got to have a little darkness in your movie of I I don't want things to work out. I want horrible things to happen. Maybe you. It's how the world. It's how the world works, man. Say, Brian, it's, it's Brian may be rooting for that van. He's like, yeah, abduct her, kill her. No, I no, I don't Not want her dead. <laughs> no, I, no, I don't want her dead. Um, no, how I ever, how I always viewed this film was that Seamus is unfinished business. I always viewed Sam as a defunct CIA officer who the one that got away with Seamus and you know, he's been bouncing around doing whatever he had to do to win. And then he recognized his chance to fix a past mistake, a, to get the one that never got away Yeah, and then went for it. And the fact that, uh, that he gets picked up by the guy he asks help for triangulating the cell phone, like the clearly still in guy. Hey, I thought you left, you know, whatever. And him getting picked up is, is the one that came in from the cold. It was his recompense. It was, I finally finished that job that got me dismissed in the first place. Yeah. And he gets, he gets to knock off a bond villain. Yeah, right. So, and, and get help from another one. Yeah, this movie has three. We so we just covered Moonraker, and we've got <laughs> Michael Lonsdale here, who who plays Drax from Drax Industries. Jonathan Price is in Tomorrow Never Dies. Sean Bean is obviously in Goldeneye. So we we have a convergence of Bond villains, and only one is actually villainous. I feel like that's Jonathan Price's lot in life. Is you're just. You're going to be the bad guy. That's just. And you're bad. Loved him as the, uh, what is he? The, the sparrow, the high sparrow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Uh, any time. See, and that's, that's the best thing is that like when I had watched it as a boy, I didn't know Jonathan Price's other work. So coming back to it and just be like, ah, oh, there he is. Right. Now look at this guy. And, and it, he could have surprised me that he wasn't actually Northern Irish, both, uh, him and, uh, Natasha McElone, uh, or like they had, uh, accent coaches and they sounded so right um that must be uh heartbreaking to our north irish actors who are trying to make it in the biz if other great actors can do your accent but they seemed so real and they they feel it feels like their history and their working together had uh weight like that they were they were real there and i the last thing about jonathan price i think tomorrow never dies is actually really good i like mm. that one. Oh, it's, and, yeah i do too I do too. I think it's yeah. the second, the second best Pierce Brosnan one. And we've got some cool uh, henchmen in that one too. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good one. And Michelle Yao, everything, everywhere, all at once. A great movie. So she's she's still killing it years later. I I couldn't find any alternate casting for this movie, which tells me they got their people. And what a great cast we've talked about it. The only thing that I saw as like alternate or extra casting was Ron Jeremy was involved with this film. He had a small saw that part too. that was cut. And given what we know about Ron Jeremy, I mean, we we knew back then. He didn't then, have a small part. 
I promise you that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm still trying to keep it PG. But <laughs> gosh, where do I even go with that? I, I'm just glad that he's not involved with this movie. It's it's a blessing sure. to this movie holding up that Ron Jeremy is not a part of it. So right. so that's that's good. And Katarina Witt, who's who plays uh, Natasha Kirilova, the skater. She actually had four worlds, not three. So she she took a little bit of humility. Maybe they just thought four was too big of a brag. So her character only has three. Right. Like in the movie world, it's impossible to say that here's this swimmer that's got 21 medals. Right. No, that that guy did that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Our our producer here is Frank Mancuso Jr. Director John Frankenheimer. He has done quite a bit of these intrigue type films. Bird of Alcatraz, Manchurian Candidate, Seven Days in May, The Train, Seconds Grand Prix, does French Connection 2, which I, I was unaware there was a second one, uh, Black Sunday as well, Year of the Gun, does Ronin Reindeer Games. He's won four Emmy Awards, three consecutive in the 90s for directing television movies. So he he is very, very busy. This is his wheelhouse. Brian, I'll start with you. Are you familiar with a lot of his filmography? I'll be honest. This is, I other than Manchurian, I'm kind of out here. I, I really enjoyed Island of Dr. Moreau. I didn't actually know that uh, French Connection had a, a sequel until you mentioned it. Uh, I'm a big fan of Manchurian Candidate. He seems to be one of those directors that probably would have been bigger if he hadn't been kind of pigeonholed in a way, like I was looking through his cinematography and I was just kind of like, it looks like, like he'd do something good and then he'd get put in onto a script that could have made somebody if the script wasn't crap. And, you know, he kept trying to, you know, force his way into a better place. But, you know, like you said, with Ronan, uh, and you know, reindeer games obviously got crushed. Like this guy's got skill. Like he, he makes very engrossing films, but I think it falls almost like onto the Bill Paxton piece that we talked about with frailty where like maybe less would have been more for him. Like if he had maybe, maybe been a little bit more judicious in what he, the scripts he picked to direct, and then really made those crushingly good, then perhaps he would have had greater success. That's fair. He's a very, very busy man. Dustin, are you familiar with much of his work? No, not at all. Not at all. And it's, that's no surprise to any of our listeners. Uh, but what I'll, what I'll say is it does seem, looking at his filmography, it does seem like he knows this subject. And sometimes the subject isn't as sexy as you want it to be and sometimes making it realistic which i think this movie really nails is is the uh pace and the inner working the inner thinking of how somebody in this world might do it it makes me think of the way that john grisham writes like in the world of like a legal world or or that kind of thing is sometimes it's it the subject isn't that interesting i read a book in 2014 i think called the racketeer and I was mm. just like, I would have never picked this up 
but I, I couldn't put it down once I did. And it was about a dull subject. And so it made me think that like the world of operators and CIA uh, analysts is probably much more boring than movies tend to show. I think Burn After Reading does a good job of showing the comedy of that. Yeah. But like, it, it seems as if like, yeah, I've never heard of any of this stuff. But I bet it's because it's so realistic, it's not entertaining. The big short comes to mind. <laughs> big short. Yeah. So, and, and that's it's rough to say. I mean, I'm not, not trying to slam the guy, but uh, I, I'll tell you, I look at some of these and I think, I wonder if they would be entertaining to watch if you just are in the right mindset. Like if you're a dad, you like Master and Commander, but you have to know <laughs> like what you're getting into. So like if you have watched Ronan and you know that what he gets right, he gets right then maybe you look at something called 99 and 44, 100% dead and say, all right, let's go for it. And it might be trash, but we, but you, you don't know based on the, the director's like, you know, expertise in the subject. It might be like, oh, that was, I would, I think people said about Ronan, it's almost got a documentary feel. It seems so real. So maybe that's something we would find in his other films. That was definitely stylistic on his part. He shot everything with wide-angle lenses. He avoided bright colors. All the props were mute colors. No extras were allowed to wear anything bright. So, yeah, I think documentary is the right... It it almost seems to fit right in with some of the 70s grittiness-type shots. Uh, I, I think, to some extent, he's attempting to mimic the bullets of the world with his car chases and and other Manchurian candidate comes to mind but yeah yeah the movie doesn't look like it was made in 98 no you, you say uh like what what did it come behind or i think it was a uh, like rush hour talk about bright and brash and bold like that <laughs> an american to, to think to think those movies came out in the same year you wouldn't be able to tell the drab the the drab tone of this movie is a strange comfort if you like this kind of stuff. And I found comforted by like it's gloomy and rainy and maybe it's not, but yeah, I noticed there weren't any bright yellow or red dresses or pink hats. This right. is this seems right. And we're in France. <laughs> it still just seems like, oh, this is the seedy world. The day that like it's like the opposite of it's always sunny in Hollywood. No, it's it's the world's like this a lot of the times. It reminded me of the conversation. Uh, Brian, I, I think you were on yes. that episode with me. It reminded me a lot of yes. how that movie felt, which is a great, great movie. Check it out. Gene Hackman is amazing in it. That was a lot of fun. But Brian, you were going to say something? My my wife will completely call me out on this if you ever ask her about it. But uh, my first time in Europe was in Paris. And we were out one night and she was like, why do you like being out, you know, at, at night in these places so much? Now, granted, Paris is beautiful by night, but I was just like, I don't know, I'm having some like Ronin love right here, like oh, cool. just like I we were, you know, we did Montmartre and everything, and and the uh, church at Sacre Coeur and stuff like that. And there, like, so much of my desire to be in that area came from film I have seen where they use that as a a vehicle to push plot and you're like ah i'm here <laughs> you you go to the guggenheim and you're like i want to have a shootout here i i need to have a shootout here right now this movie's better than the international yes it is yes sorry brian 
Well, these were both Brian right. picks. Hey, they're, they're, both, they're both my picks. So, <laughs> yes. like, but, but I will say the similarity between the two of them is they both have a very distinctively European vibe to how they're filmed. And I appreciate that. I, I do think it adds to the, the mystique of the film on having these very you know, ultra-realistic areas where they film and, and that low-light, that drab, European Cold War feel to it. Like, I'll, I'll, even, uh, I'll even go the opposite direction and say something where they go super sepia tone for the entire film with something like The Good Shepherd with Matt Damon. Actually, Robert De Niro's in that too. But you have you know, the other end of the color wheel, but they still go for that drab, quiet, secretive look to the film yeah. specifically because we're talking about Cold War spies. Cold War spies, and we only get our our sort of point of view from the operative or the criminal, the, you know, against the law side. This movie did a great job of a, avoiding the, like, a third group or, like, a, a, a different side of, like, law enforcement or, like, Interpol. Someone, like, tracking them down, like, sniffing out their their progress. We didn't need it. So glad it's not there. Sometimes yep. that's fun to have the inspector that's on the case and maybe there's a history between somebody on the team and the and whoever's tracking them down. That's fun for a different movie. We didn't need it. We just need the the rough and tumble operators. An example of where they did it right was Mission Impossible Ghost Recon. Or Ghost Ghost Protocol. Protocol. A yeah. twenty twelve movie. No wait, twenty eleven. So I'm trying to plug our episode next week. So you've uh, seen it, <laughs> Chad? Yes. Nice try. <laughs> Fa- failure. Yes. yes. Way, way to screw up that. Just like Fry keeps messing up Gene <laughs> Reno's name. <laughs> so we we've t- we're going to be friends. Gene Reno. He's going to like me better. Yep. This this movie we've talked a little bit about the stunts. There's a body count of 34, which ah. that that seems. Hi, I I think maybe we're just assuming one or two people in each of those cars that blew up or flipped over. There's quite a bit going on. Talked about a, a little bit about how many stunt drivers were employed. 300 for the final chase scene, which I I was kind of wondering about that. Like none of this are models or anything like that. They wanted practical effects, so these are people wrecking all over the place. And they actually employed a Formula One driver, Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre Jarier was our Formula One driver. Dude sounds like a fancy sparkling water. Yes. Yes. Next. I nailed that. (laughs) (laughs) I got some blackberry flavored earlier tonight. (laughs) So given all of that, what did you, did the stunt stand out to you guys? I'm sure it did during the chase scene. What did you like here? Practical effects, I think we always gush about. There was not a single Michael Bay car flips over in an explosion. There had to be one. When, there was one. There was a flip, was but it was a, co- it was a really well done. No, it wasn't. You, you know the flip I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There you, was a flip, yeah. but it wasn't the Michael Bay flip. Yeah, it, it was not the Michael Bay flip. It did explode eventually, though. 
and and they didn't do anything twice. That's right? true. Like I feel like I feel like with a lot of these, they'll they'll use the same cinematic explosion more than once. I'm sorry, people, you can't see me. I'm doing yes. hand motions here, but um, yeah, <laughs> I do feel like there's some some overuse of the same charges. And this was like, like we talked about when we're on the edge of our seat, moving a little bit, like dodging out the, of danger while we're safe whole, at home. Yeah. That whole last chase scene, the entire time, every time I watch that, the entire time I'm thinking, even if you're a seasoned operator, you have to have at least a little bit in the back of your mind. This is the time that I'm going to zig when they zag. I thought they would speed up the film. This wasn't sped up film. They said occasionally they would use 22 frames and shoot it instead of shooting it at 20 frames. Occasionally they had to do it. But I was certain they were, there's a lot of films. We just came off of Moonraker where the Venice had a five knot uh, limit. So you can't exactly take speedboats through Venice ca- canals. And they obviously sped up the film. It's painfully obvious. surely they're going at like 30 miles per hour and we've sped this up nope nope i'm with you brian i no matter how much experience driving head on into traffic and trying to remember okay this one left this one right this one straight like eventually i'm gonna get confused and yeah bad things (laughs) well well, and and then i started thinking (laughs) What if what if the genius is you you literally straddle that middle line and just expect everybody to go off to the left and the right? You have to expect there's at least one dude just super deep into his Beatles song, you know, like ah, you know, just just rocking out, and then oh no, there's a guy heading right for me. Like as sooner than attention. later, someone's going to left when you left. Yeah, and I, I like the whole time like. At least if you're Sam as the chase car, like you're getting that the the, the lanes being plowed. Like you, you're you're the Bruce Willis find yourself a, a blocker and you know, you got the the ambulance and you follow on your way. Well, that's going with traffic. Like I I just I, I think in the back of your mind you always have to be thinking all it takes is one guy that shouldn't have a driver's license to end this chase. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think that's, you know, it's part of the conceit is that these people's reflexes are such that they could, right? I, I, I'm not discounting what you guys are saying at all. Um, but like these guys are that, are that good, including Deirdre, like they're, they're that good that they can, <clears throat> not a superhuman ability. It's just, uh, it just worked out this way. And for some of the drivers, it doesn't work out. Um, I, I, speaking of the of like the stunts and then actually the the practical effects, there was one special effect that actually did stand out to me this time, and it was a bummer that I noticed it. There's a very clear time when Vincent and Sam are talking to each other while they're driving, and it's green screen behind them, mm-hmm. and it's the only scene like that. And it makes me think that like they had to add it in later when they weren't on mm. location because everything else was so good. Yeah, I, maybe even as part of the green screen behind them, it's like maybe it's like a brighter day. Like they couldn't get an overcast day in their green screen. The, you can notice it, but aside from that, uh, the 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 things done that are meant to wow you did wow and continue to without being flashy. It's it's just like gritty and real. 
Yeah, they actually did have one of those days that was a problem because I read they were wetting some of the cars and wetting the tires and things like that to make it look like it had just rained. So they, one of those things where you can't get the rain when you need it to show up. <laughs> as far as soundtrack, it's kind of minimalistic. The The main theme is this melancholy, haunting melody, and it's played by you both of you have told me this is your favorite instrument the armenian daduk which the daduk of course yes, i yeah. am, i am 100 percent pronouncing that correctly as i do with all things in this podcast <laughs> it's okay i I'm, I'm getting really excited for you pronouncing the lovely woman who made this soundtrack so please take take first swing at this you have set me up for failure sir i do not have that note so <laughs> I am going oh. to punt that back over to you. You pronounce her name. All right. Uh, I'm going to go with Elia Cryella. Nice. Well done. It is nice. It is E-L-I-A space capital C M-I-R-A-L. But anyway. The Elia reason Miral. I know. You don't pronounce Miral. Oh, C. I like that. Oh, all right. No C. All right. right. If there's a capital letter before a letter that doesn't make sense, don't pronounce yeah. it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, anyway, the reason I know that is because I have this soundtrack. I absolutely, th- this is one of the gems of this movie. The movie's awesome. Love the soundtrack. Absolutely. Like there is nothing that gives that like post cord cold war European vibe like this soundtrack, like an Armenian Daduk, like the yeah, Daduk. Apparently so. Yeah. All right. This is your version of a cowbell. You're like, I need more Daduk. got a fever (laughs) there's zero chance i'm pronouncing that right it's been a really long time since i've taken armenian dustin did anything on the soundtrack stick out to you i think it's the absence of the brassy hits like the bump but out like we don't need that uh they, they did enough with the visuals to make it seem 70s and gritty uh and you know it i think that's enough uh, I found the only time that the soundtrack stood out to me in a way that like my my ear tilt or my head tilted the way that like a dog's head tilts like when you call their name uh was the the music during um I think it was Rubenstein the the music during the skating piece mm-hmm. right before she gets sniped I was like oh how lovely because we had been it, it, the the rest of the movie had been absent of like uh I think lyrical pretty stuff it was all sort of haunting beforehand so like just to get a brief respite of this very pretty thing before you know pretty things must die something something ugly happens Uh uh-huh so uh yeah i I was i was pleased with this i think normally uh when music catches my attention is when it fails and uh, nothing fails here i I'm with you. I noticed more of the silence than I did the film. I think on a rewatch, I would try and pay more attention. I obviously caught up on the theme. They they repeat that throughout, and it's just this morose, melancholy theme. I, I liked it. It didn't... I, I don't know if I would place it in this movie. It seemed like it belonged in another genre or another culture. Granted, it's a, a different culture's instrument. But it made for an interesting choice for this movie. What I do 
want to do though is move on to our movie support superlatives <laughs> i can't even say it movie superlatives you guys ready to give out some awards to people whose names i can't pronounce it's because of your Gene Reno's. It's messed up your whole chi. I had to rewrite some of my movie superlatives to avoid mispronouncing. It's only going to be <laughs> the people whose names I can pronounce, maybe. So, Dustin, your MVP you're of Ronan. Oh, man. Now you're making me want to choose only like the, the names with the most flair so I can throw off my pronunciation. My <laughs> MVP is Varese Zarabande, yeah. who was the one who released the soundtrack. No, it's it's Robert De Niro. This is my favorite performance of his. His character is really likable. His uh, he's believable as someone who's in this world. His sense of humor is there without being overly comedic. He instills himself as like the leader of the crew. Uh, I I just everything about it, everything about this performance from him is why it's my favorite performance of his. High praise, high praise for the amount of films that he's put through and the great ones he's put through. Brian, who's your MVP? My MVP is the camaraderie between Robert De Niro and Jean Reno. It's the friends we made along the way. Who? I don't... <laughs> I, <laughs> I refuse. I refuse. <laughs> I abjectly refuse. Uh, I, no, I think that they're... The, the tag team piece of their friendship throughout this film is a driving force of it. It's the backbone. You have all of this other deceit and you even have points where each of their counterparts are questioning, do you really trust this person? People from their past saying, is this really important to you? And that's the one thing that say, stays true and consistent. And I, I really feel like the movie falls apart without that backbone. I agree. I'm going to take it one step backwards, though, and give that credit to our director. I think when everything works this well, especially when I looked at it like a two-hour attention span, I don't have it. It flew by. You, you were right, Brian. You, this is not a movie you feel. I had a great time throughout the entire ride. Any nails that camaraderie that I need to care about these individuals that I need to drive this movie. And I need that suspicion as well. So I think John Frankenheimer did a wonderful job. So kudos to our director here. Dustin, who's your best supporting actor? Gene Reno. I, I, I really like this guy and everything. Uh, you know, our, our Mission Impossible. I, I've, I've actually teased. I, I think I might want to do the professional or Leon the professional as one of yes. my deal, dealers' choices later on. Um, but like the, this, this guy has the it factor in every movie he's in, and I, I can't stop loving the intrigue he adds. <clears throat> Something about his line delivery. If it weren't gene reno doing it then i don't think it would matter as much uh and he's not a bruiser in this movie he's smoother than i thought he would be uh so it's 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 him all the way i could gush longer but it's 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 jean Reno. excellent choice poorly pronounced brian <laughs> brian who's uh, your best 
I actually have the exact same thing, but I want to expound upon this a, a little bit. The the brilliance of this guy's acting is the fact that he's not known for a lot of things. Like if you go on IMDb, two of his top four build things are the professional and this. And this being such a you know Ronan being such a, a you know low key thing. He's in Alex Cross, which was big. He was in Twenty Two Bullets. He was in, you know, he he does a lot of uh, like I'm not going to sugarcoat it. He does a lot of B movie action stuff too. But you know, he was in Hotel Rwanda. So it's one of those things that I just Godzilla, even though it was the bad one. Like it, it's one of those guys. Uh, you know, Krieger in Mission Impossible, like. This guy has those chops. I love seeing him and stuff. Usually if I see him build, I'm like, sign me up. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. I, a lot of those movies, Hotel Rwanda is one that I'm not going to go out and be like, oh, you need to watch Hotel Rwanda. But if you do, it's a fantastic movie that you'll probably never want to see again. So those, Sure. Leon the Professional, I kind of feel the same way, especially with the, there are different cuts out there that make it worse than what I I first saw. For me, I, I'm going to go with uh, Stalonska Osgood. Stalon scares game. Yes, Stalon you're, you're, you're making that up. Yeah. <laughs> Stalon Skarsgård as Gregor. I, I like a good bad guy, and I'll be honest, just seeing Stalon Skarsgård makes my spidey senses tingle. I'm like, ah, I'm pretty suspicious yeah. of you from the get go, but you know what? His turn was still very enjoyable. It's like, of course you betrayed them. You little weasel. And I, a capable weasel. Yes. Oh, very capable. weasel. Very capable. Yep. Yeah. So that whole sequence where he's like, I'll show you what, what kind of dangerous world we're in. And he's like, Hey man, he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Making a point. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, geez. I wow. I was convinced from the beginning. I was like, he's gonna shoot that kid. He's gonna shoot yeah. that kid. Like, please believe him. He's still in Skarsgård. He's gonna shoot that kid. So, <laughs> yeah. Where did that come from? I should have made your strip. Like, just. <laughs> <laughs> he's a good bad guy. He's a great bad guy. He is. Right. I want my weapon settings to zero. Dustin, who's your hidden gem? Well, I, I had a bunch that I was trying to pull from, and I, I think it's actually early when when the instruction is given, like, just tell Vincent what it is that you need. And it's when Larry is asking for, like, a fast car with good handling, like, so the, the Audi Series 8 or something. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's, it's as the scene shifts away from them talking to the table, he comes up with something secondary. He goes, oh, I'll actually need a replacement because, because the, what it comes with like it can't handle the pressure or the torque. Like he's he's going into detail about why he needs specifically what he needs, and I think it's always fun to listen to or to watch someone who's good at what they do be good at what they do. So this guy who's asking for a very specific thing is it it gives you the mindset that oh these guys are professionals at what they're doing and so that that that's my hidden gem there oh man i just took that as he was being kind of an immature tool like i need this car cuz he immediately goes i need the nitrous 
Oh gosh. I yeah, I think it's one of those things like if this were Fast and the Furious, it'd be like this this dude sucks. But because it's I I took it as this is a very precise type of measurements here that I need. And if it yeah. weren't for this, then I can't accomplish at the level that we're all gonna be safe. Yeah, I was on board later. It's just when I was first introduced, like I'm gonna hate this dude. And it turns out he actually Oh yeah. Yeah. The reason I actually didn't have an issue with Larry, like initially, was you never have that moment where he's like hitting the special button to go faster or right. anything like that. Like it like that that's that that makes it an avenue for what they're talking about. Like it just was like, look, man, we're gonna be in a car chase. We're gonna have a dude shooting a bazooka out of a car chase, you know, out of mm-hmm. a sunroof. Like, I'm gonna need this. <laughs> like that's practical. Yeah. Brian, who was your hidden gem? Uh, my hidden gem is Michael Lonsdale. Tracks oh, yes. himself. Uh, I have, uh, when we first got our dog, we have a Cavalier King Charles. And I swear to God, he looks like Michael Lonsdale in this movie. He like, does? With the ears and the face and everything. Like the first thing I said is like, God, he looks like the French guy in Ronan. I love the piece of this movie that actually ties the title of the movie better than the intro. I actually wish they had dropped the intro entirely with how they explain itself and just left it to this dude's post cold war spy hobby and how he explains it to Robert De Niro. So I actually think it's, it's, it's one of my few qualms with the film that it really should have just been left to this exposition between the two of them after he's been shot and less that they needed the star Wars, like in feudal Japan, this happens. I mean, bad guys paint minifigs. That's what we know. Peter Cushing had a huge, collection of miniature figures that he enjoyed painting and collecting so you Woo! Know. warhammer 4000 yeah i finished, draw, I finished painting a cthulhu the other day oh um, <laughs> warhammer 40k so not 4000 the nerds will rise up i, I gotta say I, i'm with you here brian is that th- that would have been a better intro I almost would go so far as to say I almost don't need it explained at all. But maybe it's just because I know what Ronin right. are. Yes. Right. And that's why. But um like having no explanation for what Ronin then you gotta think ninety eight, the internet's not quite what it was. You know, not right. everybody knows that right. stuff. So yeah, I, I like your change there in a bit. In a way. So And I've praised her already, but I don't know. There's something about the figure skating, Katarina Witt. I I was surprised that it wasn't really it. They actually got a celebrated professional, but her acting was fine too. She does a good job in her scenes. So kudos to her for putting on a beautiful performance, but also not being a terrible actress as well. I don't think yeah. she, she's done a whole lot. So my expectations were low. Uh, recast who are we recasting i'll go with you dustin i think scene bean has a little bit too much uh stage <laughs> presence 
And so instead of seeing Bean in that role, I'd like Jason Fleming, who is very similar looking and can play the kind of tweaked out anxious that uh, Sean Bond does. So uh, it's it's not like I don't want him in the movie. It's just that I think to take away from the bravado that Sean Bond brings in, I'd, I'd like Jason Fleming there instead. And if we're going to recast Sean Bean, you have to do it with Bean the Muppet. Oh, the little... <laughs> Uh, the little rabbit, yeah, who's collecting tithes uh, in Christmas Carol. Yes, exactly. Brian, who are you recasting? Uh, I actually went a different direction with this. Uh, I think the one oddity in this film is, like, I just, I, I wanted a little bit more kind of <sighs> grit to it. I'm not even really sure how I put this together. But anyway... I was recasting Skip Sudith, uh Larry, but I was putting in Joe Morton from T2. Okay. I just, I, I feel like his facial intensity matches that driver piece. Like, I, I don't even know how I made the, the, the segue, but I was just sitting there thinking, I was like, man, you know, in speed and T2, I was just like, I, I just, I wanted something a little bit more, and, and slimmer. Like, Larry always seemed a little big to be planning on beating people in cars. That's why he's his driver. The fat yeah, guy gets I mean, to drive. That's fun. Yeah, but if you're thinking about your nitrous system giving you the edge, maybe think about losing 100 pounds. Oh my god. Oh. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> he's not a small man that's so. harsh that's harsh that's hey man if, really if, funny. if 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 i i'm gonna go with uh a a quote from antitrust here in the tech company you're a one <laughs> or a zero you're alive or dead i'm telling you if if your job is look at jason statham in the transporter man he's weighing every part of his car do you think he's not weighing himself I looked at Jason Statham and Crank, and yeah, he wasn't doing much weighing at all unless it was cocaine. <laughs> well, uh, that in that movie, he was only have to keep his heart beating. Yes. He doesn't have to keep his car going. I'm just saying, like, I was thinking somebody a little bit more slim and intense. Right. I like Joe Morton. All right. Well, we're going to ignore your body shaming. I'm going to go with Richard. <laughs> I'm going to replace a random background thug. I really liked our cast, weight and all. Uh, but I went Richard. I said Michael Lionsdale. <laughs> Lionsdale, is, he's a large man. How oh. am I getting crap for this? Now, now we're taking shots at Michael Lionsdale. But yeah, I, I want Richard Keel in here. I want him reuni reunited with Michael Lonsdale. Yes. So put him Jaws. as one of the background thugs. We get Jaws. We get Drax. It's it's goofy. It's stupid. It's a throwaway. Brian is very angry with me. I don't care. It's my recast. You can have your slim, beautiful cast. I'm going to have my giant men and my fat drivers. <laughs> All I'm saying is in the, in the car, in the car, weight matters. In the car, weight matters. You have your Ryan Gosling's driving and... uh I will, I will. He was I'll an embryo. Richard Keel on a scooter. <laughs> he, he was an embryo in this movie. All right. Best shot, Dustin. Okay. I think this is when 
Gregor catches the mess kit coffee cup before it hits the ground. Because they do change like the perspective of it, like almost from ground level. And you see that he catches the cup really millimeters before it even clangs on the ground. And I thought that was a sort of a turning point that, oh, this guy's good. And you see what Sam is doing, testing him in a way. Uh, and I, I, I thought that shot was impactful for storytelling. Yeah, it sets you on high alert of this guy right away. Mm-hmm. Brian, what's your best shot? Down the steps in Momar. I, I love that shot of him going down the steps in the trench coat. I feel like it set the tone for the whole movie. Okay, all right. Did you get a trench coat when you were visiting? <laughs> I, I, I don't actually own a trench coat, but uh, it, I will say I, I kind of want one for this scenario piece. Like right. If I'm ever going to be a spook. I'll need that, that trench coat. That was high fashion in 98. For me, it was right before the scenes that Dustin was talking about. There's a great shot of the van that's driving up to this compound, and it is just slamming down rain to meet the rest of the team. And I, I'm always for a, the scenery setting the tone. It's like, oh, you're going to get into this van? And then they do, and it's this dark, dreary, where are we going? What are we going to do? So... I really like that shot and that setup. Best scene, Dustin. Uh, it's Sam cementing his role as a leader among the mercenaries when he's continuing to press what's in the case, uh, and then then proceeds to well, we'll need a lot more money. Um, it's it's also the scene where he does end up pressing Spence with the coffee cup ambush. I just thought this was a uh, like kind of an accelerant to his role in the crew. Uh, And it showed that Deirdre could be spoken to in that way and did respond. Her response was to turn away and to make a call, but it showed that she was a human being and was able to be in a way like manipulated, uh, which is something a CIA analyst should be able to do. So it was a cool scene for me. Yeah, he's the only one asking the right questions during all of this. So, yeah, he's he's doing a great job getting that intel. Brian, what's your best scene? I actually like Jean-Pierre and Sam's conversation over his model. I think that, you know, like I said earlier, I think you don't need the, the opening piece. I think you could have left it all to that. And his point saying, you know, revenge was a piece of the 47 Roman Ronin that's kind of feeds into my theory about Sam having this thing left undone. And he says, well, that I can agree with. And he goes, and afterwards they all kill themselves. And he's like, ah, that I don't care. (laughs) So, so, so I, I really liked their, their quid pro quo on that. And, and I especially like the line where he says, uh, in the end of the day, we're likely to be punished for our kindnesses. And he's like, I'm not going to hurt you. Like there's a, a piece where you as a wolf can suss out another alpha wolf and realize that, yeah, you've got dogs. You've been a player and whatnot. This man is skilled enough to kill you. So 
help them anyway, you're helping a friend. So there's a there's an understanding there that happens, and Sam picks up on it immediately, saying, like, you have nothing to fear from me. So I, I really enjoyed that interchange. The great dialogue at the end that you're talking about with Jean-Pierre and Sam of they chose honor, they chose myth, they chose wrong. It's like <laughs> Sam's yeah. just response to that. Like, they chose wrong. Yep. Well, but they got the story wrong because one of them didn't. Uh, my my best scene for me is comedic. The tourist scene with Sam and Deirdre, uh, the little thing Sam is doing, it feels very authentic to a spy or a special agent. And seeing all these little traps and, and booby traps that he's making, he, he puts a sign against the luggage. He gets Pays someone, the guy to take it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it takes pictures of him and Deirdre in the background getting making sure to get the case and how many people are around it. It it was fun, it was light, but it also had stakes to it. So I really I enjoyed seeing Sam show off his skills in another setting. Because we'd we'd seen what Dustin was talking about as well, his kind of hard analytics versus this where it's it's almost out having fun and you actually get to see Deirdre smile, which I think was yeah. the only time in this movie that she is smiling. She's faking it. She's smiling. And, and frequently in movies, this is a role reversed where it is the female character who is a little more natural doing things uh, in plain sight. And she's the one that's stiff. <laughs> I thought that was that was pretty cool to, to see that that switch. Yeah. Yeah, she relax, is, relax. She is uncomfortable with all of that. We're on vacation. <laughs> Best wardrobe and makeup moment, Dustin. Uh, I, I wrote something down, but I'm going to audible out of it because I think Gregor's glasses mm. disarm him in a way, kind of makes him look like he should be just a techie guy, not the violent, capable man he ends up being. Uh, those type of glasses I think are often used, you know, you put Philip Seymour Hoffman in those and it becomes a different guy. And so like, I, I think those very particular style of glasses, I think maybe even the, the jacket that he wears, I think the, the wardrobe helps him blend in the way that like a KGB agent should, or sorry, uh, he was German, whatever it is. Like he, he, I think that's German Stasi something. Yeah. Brian, what's your best wardrobe? I, I, I'd love to give credence to uh, Dustin here for a second, just because I, one of the great film parts was he's like, oh, you're going to kill me. You're never going to get it. And he's like, oh, we're not going to kill you. And he just goes and takes off his glasses. Yeah. Like that's that was one of the best like work over scenes I've ever seen in a film. With Jonathan Price in the yeah, yeah. like that, separate room, yeah, like that was like I know what's about to happen. Right. I see the writing on the wall. All right. Yep. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think the wardrobe period in this film is great because it's not memorable. You're We're right. talking about a whole bunch of people who don't want to be seen. They don't want to be remembered, and they done exactly what they need to do to make sure that they are not such i think you touched on the point that i'm about to make because i really struggled with this there was a lot that didn't strike me as memorable but 
What I wound up picking was something that distressed me early on. Deirdre is the bartender. She comes in with a gray sweater. And I'm thinking, wow, uh, what a horrible bartender. She is impersonable. She's not smiling. She's just like, whatever, get your drink, get out. But she changes out of this gray sweater. She removes it. And when she goes out to the rain, she doesn't take it with her. And my immediate thought was, what a nice gray sweater that you have left. So, uh, not memorable wardrobe for me, but that part stuck out. So, I'm, I'm listing that as my best wardrobe, the gray sweater that was left behind in the bar. I, I, have, a, I have a theory on this, by the way. I actually don't think it's... I, I think that they have an understanding with the ownership of that bar. I think the two that leave after Sam's entrance are the actual bartenders or the actual owners. And yeah, they're allowing who, that to happen and like, yeah. they, they leave arm in arm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I think too. So the, the exit is we're allowing this gathering to happen and lock up after you leave. Oh, I agree. Yeah. They definitely were clued in on what was going on. Dustin, pretty good movie. You said best Robert De Niro role. What are you changing though? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a little power in your hands here, Chad. Can I pick option one or option two? Let's go with option one. Kill Sean Bean. Excellent. <laughs> that, that is the right answer. That is the right answer, sir. There we go. Brian, that's all you need. Brian, are you killing Sean Bean too? No, I'm happy with Sean Bean's life here because I actually won. A, <laughs> I, I I won I won a WVU uh, movie trivia night one time at Up All Night based on this because uh, they asked who could name a movie where Sean Bean didn't die the quickest, and I was like, run it, run it, <laughs> and they had to they had to look it up like like legit go up to like the computer terminals like we didn't have smartphones hardcore yet. So they had to go up and they were like, oh yeah, you didn't die in that. And I was like, ah, so, uh, (laughs) my, my change. One thing for this is I really, really, really enjoyed Vincent's reply to that guy saying like, where do I know you from Vienna? I want more of that. Like I, I loved the, the little tidbits that they dropped in and around this film about their greater legacies as spies. And as a huge fan of, uh, of Jean Le Carre's work, I like stuff like that. So that's, that's where I'm at. More interconnectedness. I, okay. Yeah. I like that. I, I'm going with something much simpler, I guess. I don't think I needed multiple surgery scenes. I feel like we could have removed Larry's scene altogether when they're Mm -hmm. treating his leg. Like so many of these other movies, yeah, they get shot, and you can just address it off screen. Like I assume they took the bullet out. We We had that extended one with Sam. I'm fine with that, I guess, although it was pretty gruesome. No, I just didn't need to go back to that well on Larry. With the Sam one, I almost felt like I could have stood to him for him to be a little less in control. Uh, he was very much like in control of his own body and how he felt. And he's directing the guy who's actually he's, he's directing, I think, Jean-Pierre mm-hmm. how to do it. 
And I just I, I would have loved to see maybe a hint of vulnerability. It's uh, can, it's can, Gene Reno that he is uh, directing. At what point can I bring up Master and Commander here? Right. Well, that's that's an important one. <laughs> that's an important one. Yes. A lovely one. Yes. No. No. no forbidden. <laughs> <laughs> Best quote, Dustin. It is a Vincent quote, and there are a lot of the really really good short ones, but uh, I think it's it's something along the lines of. Um, if it's in Paris, I'll have it to you by this afternoon. Like, he's capable. Tell Vincent what you want, he's going to get it for you. So he, somebody says some random things like, I'll have it for you this afternoon. It's, and you believe him. And you don't know the <laughs> character yet, but you believe him. Excellent. Brian, what's your best quote? I am going Sean Bean on this. Almost a bit of raspberry jam back then. <laughs> Almost a bit of raspberry jam. I Like, his losing. Kept the money. <laughs> Job well done. Job well done. Back. Job well. Like his <laughs> I, his losing his mind was probably one of the biggest like exclamation points of this film. Yeah, I'm definitely using that line. A bit of a raspberry jam back there. Bit like, of raspberry jam. Like that's that's gonna be rele- relevant for me. Uh, Brian took mine, but I did have a backup quote, and it comes from Sam. He says, of course I'm afraid. You think I'm reluctant because I'm happy? It's just a fantastic <laughs> quote coming from grumpy Robert De Niro. Yeah, he's being real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's not, not this fearless action star. He repeatedly says, I'm afraid, I'm concerned, I'm not happy, I don't want to do this. So, yeah, I, I think that lends, lends a little... Uh, character to him all right we have come to the end of our show with our ratings and recommendations dustin we will start with you your rating zero to five stars half star increments what are you giving 1998's ronin i mentioned this term earlier and i'm gonna use it again this is a drab comfort movie the intrigue and the world of these analysts and operatives and people that know each other, uh, the absence of like any type of like saving grace or like uh, inspector on their case. Uh, I think when I first watched it and you know, rewatch it, it's it's something I could watch all the time. If it comes on TV, I would watch it more. Of course, I love uh, Gene Reno, <laughs> um, but I do see. I do think the plot has some confusing twists to it. Uh, the, there are times when, you know, I look at a movie and I, I mentioned Beverly Hills Cop earlier where it's like, what's our bad guy doing again? Uh, uh, art dealer who's like, uh, importing illegal Deutschmark. Sometimes things just don't make a ton of sense. We don't know what the box is. That's a good thing. But we also don't know, like, like you mentioned, like, why do the Irish and the Russians want this? We have a scene that ends up with a, a beautiful... Uh, ice skating champion getting shot as collateral some of that stuff just doesn't really make that much sense to me even though i like this movie um, i think i'm going higher than middle of the road with 3.5 as a drab comfort brian your this is your dealer's choice zero to five stars what are you giving 98's ronin i i think this is a solid four-star movie um it definitely deserved better than it got and it's one of those films that, you know, this is a watch anytime film for me. Like if I'm bored, 
I know it's on Amazon. I'll be like, ah, hey, uh, hey, Alexa, play Ronan. Yeah. Yeah, I'm right there with you on four stars. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I've happily passed it on to other people, and I'm going to continue doing that. It just reminded me of the best parts of the Bourne trilogy, and I'm I'm just thrilled that you chose this for us, Brian. I know there's a lot of, don't choose movies from the 90s, don't choose obscure movies from the 90s, which is like Brian's wheelhouse. Whatever, oh. bro. That rules. <laughs> this is this is Brian's comfort food is obscure yes. from the nineties. And then he knew the secret when both of us are on. You gotta have a guy in a wheelchair. Yes. You gotta have a guy in a wheelchair. Yep. So it was Speaking great. Speaking of which it. It, if we ever do Red <laughs> Dragon, I want in on that. Yep. All right. All right. All right, make it happen. Uh, we we do not have a movie for next time. Dustin spoiled it incorrectly. We are going to do the <laughs> Top 10 movies of 2012, celebrating that 10-year mark Woo-hoo! for us. So and these... 2012 won't be one of them. Yeah, 2012 was... Correct. This, this was a terrible year in cinema. I'm just going to spoil that for everyone. But... Well, it's hard coming up with this list. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say I probably could... I could tell you 20 movies that I liked... It was very easy to come up with a top ten. Yeah, yeah. Like there are movies in there where I'm like, "Well, I like that movie, but I'm like, I'm gonna put it in my top 10. We're getting to the point for for me. We're getting to a point to where like the big blockbuster hits are making it into my top ten because my normal indie stuff, my despair stuff, my dark stuff isn't cutting it. A Piranha Three Double D almost made the cut for me. <laughs> like that's <laughs> Ron Jeremy in that one too. But I got to tell you, every single year, every single year, there's one movie. There's one movie that would end up being my dealer's choice. That I'm like, no one's ever seen this, and I'm going <laughs> to put like every year. Yep. I've got one, one per year. So. That's what you've got to look forward to, dear listeners. So thank you, all the lords and ladies, Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. We've been getting a lot of communication on Facebook, which is great. Subscribe, rate, review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but it's not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? A desk is a dangerous place from which to watch the world.